0: Heaven, father we thank you um, for your word um, your word is um, our place of safety your word is our confidence um, your word grows us your word um, your word convicts us it challenges us I mean it's valuable for all things Lord God and so today Lord God let's let's see you display your glory through your word as we dive into the mysteries of of the living God is revealed through the person and work of Jesus Christ. Let the words of my mouth, let the meditations of my heart, let them be acceptable in your sight. O oh Lord God, my strength and my redeemer in whom I trust. In Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen, amen, amen. We're in a series right now on Ephesians, and in this series we're, we're diving into the idea of who am I. Say, who am I? I think that's the burning question that every human being must answer. But if you've trusted the Lord Jesus Christ as Savior, um, that, that shouldn't ne- necessarily be a question that we should ask. All that we need to know now that we're Christians is clarity. And so, so through this book, we're going to be talking about the idea of the identity of the believer. And, and so today we're, we're in section two of Ephesians chapter 1, and we're going we're gonna to finish up the latter part of the verses about God's purposes, and we're going to go from verses like 7 to about 12 today, and we will finish these today um, because I, I really don't want to, it's a lot in there, and, and it will take, I will literally be in that section for like 5 weeks, and so um, what we want to do is we want to take it section by section, but we want to, I want to deal with a, a few particular ideas in in, in this passage, and, and, and so I want us to read, and then we're going to talk about what we're going to talk about today. Look at, look at the latter part of verse, let's look at verse 5. He predestined us, talking about the Father here, for adoption through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of, the glo- of his glorious grace which, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him, that is Jesus, we have redemption. Through his blood and the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us. In our wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he has set forth in Christ. As a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. So that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of the of his glory. And so here in this passage we're going to be talking about today. Our title today and actually our one and only point today, is we're going to talk about Jesus, the creator of our identity. Jesus Christ, the creator of our identity. You, you know, you know. as we talked last week, last, the, the last few weeks, we talked about the Father's role in our identity, and, and we talked about the fact that through His sovereign choosing of us, the Father commissions our identity. Now, now this week, we're going to talk about the fact That Jesus creates our identity. But then next week, we're going to talk about the fact that the Holy Spirit completes our identity. And and so, all of them work together in unison, on one accord, uh, in a compelling way to get us into our identity and to help us to practically walk in that identity and finish and live in light of that identity for eternity. And so, we talked about. The first person of the Godhead, we believe that God is one. Don't we believe that? We believe that God is one in essence in everything that makes him by the raw material of him being from everlasting to everlasting him being God. We believe that God is one. However, we do believe that within that one God, uh, there are three persons. I like when I'm taking my son through the shorter catechisms and walking him through them. And one of the things I say is, I said, how many gods are there? He says, Daddy, one. I said, how many, how, how many gods are there? I keep asking him because see if he's confused. He'll say, one daddy. I say, well, how many, how many persons are there in the one God? And that's the question. And then it says, he says, he says, there's three, Daddy. I say, okay. Uh, there are three persons? Okay. Who are those three persons? He says, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. I said, I like that son. So how many gods is, is it? Three or one? One. Really one God? And then he says, yes, there's one God but three persons. I give him a high five. We got our little secret handshake thing going, and we keep it moving. And so, and, so, and so here, the Christian must understand, in order to understand yourself, you have to understand God. You have to understand him. Because if you don't understand your birth parent, how in the world are you going to understand yourself? And so here today, we we, we chopping on Jesus. Now, now I'm only really going to spend time on two or three words here because it, it, it and, and, and because this passage is so comprehensive for the Christian, it, it, it's, it's, it's beautiful how Paul lays this out for us. Finishing up last week, he says he predestined us adoption through Christ Jesus is introdu- Jesus Christ. So he's introducing Jesus Christ here according to the purpose of His will. How many know? How many of you know that God's will has a purpose? Think about that now. God's will always has a purpose. So when you're asking God for his will, you're actually asking him for his purpose. Now, in the context of this passage, God's purpose having a will is talking about his purposes as it relates to them being fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ. So now he goes on and and, and he just talks about the idea of salvation here. And he says, to the praise of his glorious grace. He wants his grace to be glorified. God wants his grace to be glorified. God wants, and that word is going to come over, over, and over, and over, and over, and over again in this, in this section. But God's grace is his unmerited favor, if you don't know what it is. In other words, um, getting in good graces with God without your help. That's what grace means. In other words, God initiates putting you in contact with himself without you being, without him being passionate for anything that you could bring to the table. That's grace. If you think you are fly enough to be in God's graces, then that's not grace. That's something else. But see, biblical grace in the mind of God is when the person has nothing to bring to the table, nothing to offer him, but God offers himself to them. So the praise of the glory of his grace, it says, with which he blessed us in the beloved, talking about Jesus. Talking about Jesus, who is the beloved son. Now it goes in, it says, in him, that is Jesus, we have redemption through his blood. Say redemption. This, this term is, is a powerful word. I just basically had to stop. They're Just studying and looking back over the idea of redemption. It's, it's one of those massive, massive Christian terms. It's not a two-cent term just to throw around to floss, but it's a term that is a reflection of those who have embraced Jesus Christ the Savior. Redemption here is used not in its positional sense only. It's not used in its practical sense only. And it's not used in its ultimate sense. In other words, um, when when, when you trust Christ as Savior, you are justified and given positional right standing with God, even though you still act a fool and you're practically not what he bought in practice, in position. You got me? And so, and so, but then ultimately God through life grows you up through experiences, through challenges, through his word, through community, through leading of the spirit, through everything within his gra- within the graces of himself to make you look like what you were justified to be. Okay. But then he ultimately, because you were made to be a particular image, that's Jesus's image. Therefore, it's not enough lifetime for us to have to look like Jesus. It would take eternity to look like Jesus. So instead of making us go, do you know how many trials you got to go through through a life and how long that life would have to look and how much word you'd have to know, how much word you'd have to live to practically work out your salvation on planet earth before eternity comes? So God is so gracious that he don't want to wear us out. However, he wants us to feel the brunt of that thing even though we got it for free, right? And so, and so what he does is instead of saying, I'm going to prolong their life, he says, I'm going to give them three score and seven years. I'm going to only get them about 75 years if they don't act a fool to live on planet Earth. And they got, th- they got three quarters of a lifetime to work out their soul salvation with fear and trembling. But at some point, because I've ordained their beginning and I've g- ordained their end, you're going to get me a me in a second, um, because he ordains your lifespan and your breath, he says, I am going to just take you to myself, and make you practically with me what I saved you ultimately to be. But the hope is, is when I come glorify you through sanctify, through bringing you fully sanctified, you're, you're, like, you're not at ground zero. <laughs> and so redemption is a term that's, that's, that's massive, and it talks about it, is he's talking about it in its comprehensive sense. In its comprehensive sense redemption, I, I know we we use the word redeem when we redeem the value of something, but here the word redeemed is so much more than that the redemption really means to purchase in the marketplace <laughs> now this term is used of slaves slaves on the auction block chained up and locked up and a slave owner who got mad loot and can afford it just goes on the auction block and goes, looks for slaves. And what the, what the slave owner would do is he would pull out his, his cha-ching with somebody that's with him and say, I want this one. I want this one. I want this one. Now, what's interesting about usually when slave owners would go see a slave on the auction block, they looked for the slave that looked like they were in the best condition to do something For the slave owner. But see, God, God doesn't work like that. See, God says, I want the weakest slaves you got. Give me some skin and bone, folk. I want their hair falling out. I want to see ulcers on their face. You know, I want to see some raggedy, dirty, trifling, can't do nothing for me slaves. Now, by virtue of the fact that I am going to buy them, in other words, redeem them. So, so in other words, they don't have value. They don't have value. So it's like he's wasting money. Why would you spend the most money on the most worthless thing? That's redemption. See, Jesus Christ is a high-priced item in eternity's uh, in eternity's uh, currency. However, we're of low value in eternal currency. So where God, God is just, he's what is wrong with you? He's lost his mind. That's the worst business deal of the century. But the business deal is only bad if the person that's saving doesn't do nothing with the investment that he's putting out. Yeah, and so, so redemption says, you ain't got jack. You ain't worth nothing. See, we're going to talk about total depravity in a few weeks so you can really understand that you brought nothing to the table. <laughs> and, and, and so, and so, and so this, this idea of redemption, and, and what he does is he brings them into a relationship, and it means to buy back. To buy back. And the question is to buy back from where? And from whom? And from what? And why? Let's answer that. And we're going to go through a whole bunch of verses on redemption. See, redemption in in, in this idea. See, many of us believe we're practically believing the ransom theory. Now, the ransom theory is the belief that Satan owns hell. And he's down there with a pitchfork like on Tom and Jerry. Y'all know nothing about that. With, with 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 a cast iron pot. And, and it's an escalator. You remember Tomcat was trying to run from hell? Uh, he's trying to run. And the escalator is bringing him down, and Satan like, ha <laughs> And got him in the thing and started stirring him up and cooking him in hell and giving him hell in hell. But Satan has never been to hell before. He doesn't own hell. Hell was created because of his sin. So what God does is he has created hell as the ultimate place that has no grace, has no mercy, has no love, has no shalom, and has no life that's life-giving. But he's present there because unbelievers won't spend eternity with God in the sense that they'll enjoy it. Believers and unbelievers spend eternity with God, but the unbeliever spends eternity with his wrath, with his justice, and with his holiness. So God is present in hell. So what he's redeeming us from, based on Romans chapter 5, verse 9, is clear. It says we were saved from the devil. No, it didn't. It said we were saved from sin. No, it didn't. It said we were saved to get out. No, it says we were saved from the wrath of God. God saved us from him having to beef with us. That's what you're saved from. Now, see, that don't spook you out because you ain't never seen his wrath. Give me a couple of weeks. We're going to talk all about his wrath. Then everybody going to be shouting. But right now, you just you like it. It doesn't hit you who was who was after you. It don't hit you who had a contract on your out on your life. It don't hit you at how powerful it is and how destructive it is to fall in the hands of an angry God. So redemption really doesn't matter. (laughs) But see the beauty of this idea of redemption. is that that that's the position that we were in. And God now says, I'm not going to let you spend time in eternity with my wrath. I'm going to remove my wrath from over your life. Redemption, the calling of captives from captivity, sin, through the payment of a ransom, that is Christ's death, So that means that we're released from captivity, from a captive uh, condition. And so the beauty of this is that we're acquitted of all of the charges that were against us. Now, this would seem like an unjust deal. This would seem like an unjust deal. When we talk about the idea of redemption, you and I had charges stacked up against us a mile long. I mean I mean literally the detectives of heaven have been casing us out since we were born. They sit in front of our house. <laughs> when you go to work and you while in at work. <laughs> when when you go in and you while in uh, in some secret places, they got their um, night vision glasses on going like this, writing all kinds of stuff down. So it's a rap sheet that goes around the planet three times on each one of us. And we go to court, and the rap sheet is long, and Jesus shows up as our lawyer and takes out himself. He says, listen, we're not asking for the charges to be dropped without there being restitution. So what I'll do is I want you to, they're guilty as charged. Jesus is the craziest lawyer on the planet. He said, they're guilty as charged. However, what I am going to do is I am going to do in six hours what will take them an eternity to do. Do so you miss that. He said, what I'm going to do is I'm going to give myself and I'm going to suffocate for six hours. I'm going to have my skin. My skin will be ripped. Off. I'm going to give you a matter of fact. I'm going to give you above and beyond what this sin even requires. Because my body is more than enough for them, and so what I'm going to do is I'm going to die in their place. We're going to talk about vicarious substitution and penal substitution in a second. But what happens is is that Jesus Christ says, "Listen, I am going to I want you to take their charges and put them on me." so that so the charges get vicariously dropped. Off of them because they're put on me and I am going to carry out their life sentence. Well, well, well. And I want you to... I, listen, the, the charges didn't get... There weren't lesser charges. No, no, no. So they, we, He didn't plead for a lesser pain. No, 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 no. He, didn't, he didn't say, well, let me get second degree. Let me get third. No, he said, give me all of the degrees of murder that these jokers have committed. And what I'm going to do is when I get on the cross... I am going to take an eternal hell onto me. What they, were supposed to, what they were supposed to get for eternity, I'm going to do in six hours. And what I did in six hours will be enough to keep them from having to pay for their sins for eternity. Know why you, know why everybody, know why people go to hell and they spend time, why, why are they there eternally? Why is that? Because in order to pay for your sins, it takes an eternity, which means it'll never happen. So people who are in hell are suffering, paying for their sins, but the debt can never be paid because their death in hell is not redeemable in value. So since you have worthless people going to hell, their worth is invaluable, so they just got to stay on lockdown for eternity. See, if you ain't seen a jail cell, you don't understand what I'm talking about. But, but, but see, the power of Jesus Christ and his redeeming work, it says we have redemption through his blood. Yeah, I like that. The old folk would have said, So start singing some blood songs. See, we, we don't know nothing about no blood songs. See, 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 when you sing a blood song, you recognize that there was a cost for you. You recognize that, you, but you also recognize you. And So the beauty of this idea of Christ taking our place and, and, and redeeming us. I like the way Colossians chapter 1, verses 13 through 14 says, It says, we have been transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of his marvelous son. In other words, Jesus Christ's death is a bus transfer. You get off a real bad bus that's broke down. It's hot on the bus, hotter than in here. Show up, and you get a transfer of redeemable value from the father to get on a nice air-conditioned bus. Because you're, cl- you're tra- and the lights don't come on, and the thing is stinking, and uh, oh my God. But God transfers you from darkness. Yeah. See, the, see the, in, in order for you to understand darkness, you have to understand the type of life that you were in, even though you liked it. Into the kingdom of his marvelous son, as hard as Christianity is, as challenging as Christianity is, as, 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 as broken as we become in it, it is light. It it is the kingdom of light, and it's now God's grace in helping us to now value what that means. So thus, redemption meaning the liberation of any possession, object, or person, usually by payment of ransom. It means to loose. The term is used of freeing from chains, slavery, prison. It indicates, that is, redemption a freeing from slavery of sin, the ransom of a paid price for freedom. This thought is very, 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 very clear in my, a bunch of passages which we're about to dive into. So let's talk about vicarious atonement. Say vicarious atonement. Yeah, See, so you got to know. This is something you got to know. You got to know the word redemption. You got to understand vicarious atonement. Say penal substitutionary atonement. Some of y'all studied penal substitutionary atonement. Yeah, this is what redemption points us to. Penal substitutionary atonement. God imputed the guilt of our sins to Christ and he in our place bore the punishment that we deserved. This was full payment for sins which satisfied both God's wrath. God's wrath of course is God's just demands for sinfulness to be dealt with And the righteousness of God, God's picture of intrinsic perfection, perfection that's not just out external perfection, but that's based on really being made new from the inside. So that he could forgive sinners without compromising his holy standards. Did you get that? And see, that's why when I talk to Muslims, and I say, say, how do you know you're going to spend time in paradise? They say, well, if my good outweighs my bad. But even Allah then can decide not to invite me in. I said, well, you know what you just told me? What? Allah's unholy. He said, what you mean? I said, Allah didn't deal with your sin. Your good outweighs your bad. Now, the God I serve, he's a little bit different. Now, you can try if you want to, to present your good outweighing your bad. But Romans chapter 2 says he'll take your standard that you had for goodness and without the Bible measure you up against whether or not you kept what you thought was a righteous standard and show you that even your own standards you didn't keep. He said, dang. I "I know that's, that's scary, ain't it? But then let's say you did do good and you did keep your standards. He'll then tell you on your best day. Your righteousness is as filthy rags. So therefore, your good really isn't good. It's bad because it's pride because you are, are dumb enough to think that your good works can please a holy God. Matter of fact, you think you're good. And in order to do good, you have to be good. But it has to be good from his perspective, not your perspective. To be So that's why Christ came, lived the perfect life, did good. Walked good. Talked good. Listened to his mama. Listened for his daddy. He had a job. That was redemptive. Amen. He got him a job. It, hallelujah. He got a job. That's redemptive. In Jesus' name. Then he, then look, he raised support. Full support. Luke 8, chapter verses 1 through 7. Raised full support. Came to full support. Have him a treasure. He didn't even handle the money. Redemptive. Everything, right? <laughs> in Jesus Christ, lived a good life because of being good, not showing goodness, but being good. But died on the cross innocent, but taking on guilt. And because he was not guilty, the grave had to open. It had to open because God had to vindicate the fact that really he was a propitiation. Say propitiation. That, see, see, propitiation means that, that 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 the Lord wrath was satisfied. When we sing that song, the wrath of God being satisfied, it means that eternal hell wrath that that we deserve. Jesus Christ extinguished it, being applied to us. It's very important that you understand the gospel. <laughs> so the word vicarious means to substitute. <laughs> The Bible says in in, 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 uh, 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21, it, it says, He made him who knew no sin become sin on our behalf. That's vicarious substitution. That's penal substitutionary atonement. That's redemption. In the place of is the idea here. In the place of. And so Christ was a substitute for others in that he took their place and suffered their punishment. It was also a legal act. Listen to this. Whereby Christ fulfilled the law and lawfully paid for sin. He lawfully, not unlawfully paid for sin. Now some people think that penal substitution and vicarious substitution is a New Testament idea. It's all over the Old Testament. It's all over the Old Testament. I'm going to just name a couple of verses. Genesis chapter 22 verse 13. It says, Then Abraham raised his eyes, looked, and behold, behind him a ram caught in the thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up for a burnt offering. What? In the place of his son. Substitution. Isaiah 53 verses 4 and 5. Surely our griefs he what? Bore. And our sorrows he carried off. How did he carry them off? Did he take them and carry them somewhere? No. He carried them on his body. Substitution. <laughs> I, like, I like New Testament. Then New Testament start talking smack about substitution. Like all in the devil's face. Like, man, you thought you had us, didn't you? Romans chapter 4, verse 25 says, He who was delivered up because of our transgressions, and was raised because of our justification. In other words, in the place of Romans chapter 3 verse 25 says, uh, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through him. First Peter chapter 2 verse 24 says that he made propitiation for our sins. First John 2 verse 2, and he himself is the propitiation for our sins. First John chapter 4, verse 10 says, In it, this is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to what? Be a propitiation. For our sins. Colossians chapter 1, we went back to that. Talking about he delivered us from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. So what's beautiful about this idea is that redemption and substitution is all throughout the scriptures. It's a concept that was pointing to when it would ultimately be done. Because in the Old Testament, we know that the blood of bulls and goats never took away sin. It just put them on layaway. And when Jesus came, see, some of y'all confused because y'all grew up in that need and layaway. You were from a poor background, you br- you bring all this stuff to the cash register, and you pay it over like six months. You know what I'm saying was, they they sick of it because they ain't making no money. So Walmart and everybody got rid of layaway. God did too in Jesus Christ on the cross. He got rid of layaway. Amen. So when we talk about this idea of redemption, the purchasing back of something, we're looking at the reality is that God has given us new life, family. And in light of God giving us new life in the Lord Jesus Christ, he saved us in order that we may walk in newness of life. That's why he said he predestined us to be holy and blameless. Because now he tells us God never makes a standard. That he doesn't give us the grace to keep Amen. so God just doesn't say be holy and blameless and doesn't offer an opportunity for it he offers that opportunity in Christ therefore if you are in Christ his expectation is sanctification because he's redeemed you brought you back from a former way of life for you not to wild out like you used to he gave you the opportunity for something beautiful to be able to live a brand spanking new life through the Lord Jesus Christ And find redemption, being brought back, redeemed because of the beauty and power of the Lord Jesus Christ. (laughs) I'm not going to read that. (laughs) And so, it's interesting though that as Christians, we were on the slavery block. But guess what? God didn't stop us from being slaves. Because we're now bond servants of the slave owner. So he expects us to still be slaves. But this type of slavery is a whole different type of slavery. This is slavery with a relationship, not with a stiff arm. That's why Paul, when he begins a letter, says he's a bond servant. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, when it talks about sexual purity, it gives the gospel as the means for the ability to walk in it by saying, You were bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your bodies. So, now when we look at that idea of that, we are now bought with a price, therefore we're under obligation to righteousness. Being under obligation to righteousness demands that because we've been empowered to live in righteousness, that we must live in righteousness. Now, we don't, we don't and, and, and this is the beauty of it. God doesn't leave us to ourselves to be committed to righteousness. He empowers us through the gospel to continue in righteousness. So redemption began when we trusted Christ, but redemption now continues. So now, you were redeemed, you will be redeemed, but right now you are being redeemed. That's what's happening. Then he goes to the next piece. And this will be the last of our time on this. It says, in him we have redemption through his blood and forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. This is, this is phenomenal right here. Now he begins to talk about that because redemption has taken place, forgiveness takes place. Now, we're gonna spend a little time in this because the New Testament deals with this very powerfully in the relation to how God forgives the sinner. Now, when God, for- oh, this is beautiful, when God forgives the sinner, forgiveness isn't fully applied until redemption is taking place. Now, what has to take place in order for redemption to take place? It's all through the New Testament. So, let's look at the word forgiveness here, means to pardon, the act of freeing. From from an obligation of guilt or punishment, it means to pardon and to cancel something. So the obligation set forth here is to pay for sin. So forgiveness is not just given blindly by God. God has to do something in order for him to be freed up to forgive. Because if he forgives our sins without dealing with our sins, then he's going to be in eternal frustration with us. And he'll be unholy. Therefore, God has to deal with sin so that forgiveness can be authentic and real. Powerful. You can't forgive without an authentic reality of dealing with the sin that was committed to cause forgiveness to be needed. Did you hear that? And, and, And so the beauty of this idea in the Bible of forgiveness is therefore we who have trusted Christ are no longer under obligation to pay for our sin by eternal separation. It takes, it's forgiveness does not remove sin. Did you hear that? Forgiveness does not remove sin. We're going to see that in the scripture. It never does. The blood of Jesus does. (laughs) The text says that. Beautiful, right? Forgiveness here is when the offended, God, no longer counts the sin against the offender, us, against us because the offender, us, has acknowledged our sin and guilt before a holy God and have embraced God's means of forgiveness, the redemption that comes through Christ's death on the cross when his blood was spilled. So, the, uh, so, so until we acknowledge that we're sinners, God cannot save us. That's why it says confess with your mouth. Why? We must confess our sins. That's the way. That's the reason why the Bible points to the fact that confession has to take place, admission of it, and the willingness to turn from it. That's why Jesus' first sermon was what? Repent and believe in the gospel. Did he say believe in the gospel? No, he didn't. Because if he would have said believe in the gospel, they would have just said what? They would have just created good news. But repentance lets you know that in order for the good news to be embraced, you have to understand that there's some real bad news. (laughs) If we don't acknowledge our sin, then belief in the gospel can never take place because that means that you're prideful and don't believe that you need saving. So, God, we have to do that. So, repentance of sin is presented as proceeding and adjoining to forgiveness in the New Testament. This is very important. So when you examine the the close, when you examine the New Testament, you will see this over and over again. Here's a few passages. Matthew chapter 26, verse 8. It says, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Why? For the forgiveness of sins. See that? Sins could not be forgiven without the pouring out of the blood. Uh, Mark uh, Chapter 1, verse 4. John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance. What? For the forgiveness of sins. Luke chapter 24, verse 47, and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. Last one I'll do is so many of them. Acts chapter 5 verse 31 says, God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior. I love that verse. To give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins you can't have one without the other so if you're a non christian here you can't expect to be in a relationship with god without god dealing with your sins now remember redemption is comprehensive so you can't expect as a christian to be in fellowship with god even though your relationship is preserved you cannot be in koinonia fellowship and community and walk in the light first john chapter one if you haven't repented of your sins that's why i said if we sin now before that it says if anyone says he does not have sin, he's a liar, and the truth is not in him. If any of us in our life ever say we don't have something to repent of in the sphere of our life, we're a liar. But then right after that, he says, now, since you're going to sin and sin is going to happen, he says, um, he, he says in verse 9, he says, if we confess our sins. That includes the idea of repentance, pointing back to Proverbs 28, verse 13. And he says, if we confess our sins, he's faithful. He's consistent. And just to do what? Forgive us of our sin. What has to happen first? Confession or repentance. Acknowledgement of the fact that the sin took place. Now, if you look at First John chapter 1, which we're eventually going to go through, it's about relationship between God and Christians and Christians and Christians. Beautiful. So he says he's faithful and just to forgive us of our sin and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. And he says, and if we sin, we have an advocate who is what? With the Father. So Jesus Christ is advocating that... Koinonia, change between God and man while they're Christians if we've sinned and we've confessed it. He sits at the right hand of God. The Father says, because he can hear everything at the same time. Like in the Superman movie where Superman was above the earth and he was listening like this to the city. All the problems until he zoomed in on a siren. Then he opened up and then, whoosh, went down. See, that's what Jesus does. See, that's what God, that's what the Holy Ghost does. See, when the Holy Ghost, when he hears repentance, but the issue is he's involved in it. He's not separate from it. Wish I had more time to talk about it. But 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 he's involved in it. Well, well, well. <laughs> and it's beautiful. I, I can stay on that all day. But, but but next part of this verse, and we out, family. It says, which was lavished upon us. Let's just listen to the flawless of this language. The, the flawless of this language is, is, is like going um to the best mall in the world. It's like going to Beverly Hills on the boulevard, you know what I'm saying, and having you a fat cat with you, with fat pockets, and just you going out, and you just got bags, and the convertibles open out front, and you could just go in and say, I want that, I want that, I want that, I want that, and the stuff, just, and just just bags all the way across your arm. I know the ladies, y'all like that kind of talk. You got bags around your neck, you walking out the door, bags across your leg. Listen, and that may mean meaning somebody took you shopping and lavished something on you, And didn't spare any expense. The Bible says that God took us shopping in Christ in his grace. Grace took, because the Bible says in Titus chapter 1, I believe it's verse 11, the grace of God appeared. (laughs) The grace of God is a person. When Jesus Christ appeared, he came to take us shopping. He came to take us eternally shopping in the corridors of God's grace to experience everything that God has available. But you got to repent. And then you can go shopping. Listen, that's it. Repent and believe it. I can go shopping in the grace of God. Shoot. You t- listen, boy, anybody ever took me on a, man, if they say you can go on a shopping free if you just confess, I did it. I did it. I'll, I'll name it. I'll write it down. I'll put it on Twitter, Facebook, MySpace, everything. Uh, 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 and then I'm saying, okay, it's time to go shopping. Now I'm asking God for, for shopping in his grace. I want to go grace shopping and experience. Oh man, I gotta move all of the graces, every all of the favor that He throws at us. The Bible says He la- He little la- oh, hammer. I gotta move, but He lavished it upon us in in a, in a certain way, though. Like God always doing stuff in a funny kind of way that's different than humans would do it. It's say like right here in wisdom and in insight, that's booming. In other words. He does it in wisdom and in insight. The word is a, kind of like a hendiadys here, pointing to a real potent mixture of intellectual transformation <laughs> and practical transformation. In other words, when he does it, grace isn't some blind idea. It's very esten- it's very intellectual, but it's very practical. Sophia here has a beautiful, beautiful aroma to it that points back to Proverbs that means skillful living. This is an aroma. Skillful living, understanding God's truth and being able to apply God's truth. God is so beautiful with the way that he brings his manifold grace is when he lavishes it upon us, we, we have clear picture of it and we have clear application of it. That's what the text is saying. That ain't what Eric Mason is saying. And so he says, making known to us. I, I can't unpack this because we got to wait to chapter 3. Got to save something. The mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ... God is not working anywhere else but in Christ. I hope we go home with that. Listen, if I can give a practical application to that. You can't do man's actions and expect God's results. You can't wild out expecting God's results. You can't, you can't do a worldly philosophy of something and expect God's results. If you want God's results, then you got to work within the realm in which he's working, and he's working only in Christ. Let me, let me, make, it, let me make it clear. Let me make it clear. You can't want a six-pack on a dude and a nice little fly-chiseled haircut. Oh, he got real quiet on that part. And not look at his soul. You can't like her sticking out in every which way. Talking about, I mean, you know I hear dudes say this i'm a Lord, have mercy help me, you know, I understand the spirit gotta be this, and she gotta be vers, but she gotta look like something I'm like okay, is that but but really what they mean is I'm really not really high on character that's really what you're saying I'm not high on character. I'm telling you you can have the most beautiful chick on the planet and live in hell at the house. amen now I don't uh, now I know some of you are saying, well do I have to Marry somebody that's, that, you know, we're not going to call it that you word, but, you know, that word to say, hey, is godliness? it not?" Nah, God created beauty. However, he doesn't want us to judge it based on external beauty only. So, therefore, you can't do man's results and get God's results. You can't do man's, actually get God's results. And so, ah, I got to move on because we're talking too much. We're talking too much. So, to just stay right there, Pastor E, right there in that verse, right in that section. So, as a plan for the fullness of time, Galatians 4.4, 4, in the fullness of time he sent forth his son, to unite all things to him, in him. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, with my note on that. I like this. Now, this word, uh, unite in him, is interesting because here it means to head up. I like that. It means to head up. Head up in this in, in this point means he has been exalted so as to be appointed as the ruler or head over all things in heaven and in earth. That this is perhaps the best understanding here of this. It says of bringing everything together under the control of one person. So when it says Christ unites things, listen in the first chapter of Ephesians just for free. All everything that he's going to talk about in the whole book is talked about from verses is presented in introduction in verses 1 through verse 14. So now he's talking about, when he talks about unity in chapter 4 of believers, He, you got to first understand who is the point person on unity. Jesus Christ is the point person. Now his headship, his rulership, is what makes Christians gather around unity. So this is what happens. If every Christian is walking with Jesus as central, this is where the center of our core value, Christocentrism, comes from. The rulership of Christ. Christ's comprehensive rule over all creation. We're not just making it up. We're not talking about God being first. Got a God first shirt on or hat. No, we're talking about the central pervading work of the ruling plan of God in Christ. Listen, God, he, listen, cash don't rule everything around you. Christ rules everything around you. So, 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 so now, because Christ created the cash... Matter of fact, he created the wood that was used to process. He created the flowers that were used to create the ink with. So he rules it. He, he made the material, and he's over the material when it's created and in the hands of the wicked. So what's powerful about the Bible is that Jesus, listen, he pervades and he rules everything. So, so that means in your life, he must be Lord. You don't make him Lord. He's already Lord. You just put yourself under his Lordship. See, somebody, you got to make Jesus your Lord. Nah, he's already Lord. The question is, are you going to submit to his lordship? It's real easy. Just get up under him. He said, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. That's getting under his lordship. Stop doing your own thing and get under his thing. So when it says he unites all things under himself, when people are trying to work on their own, do their own thing, make their plans happen for themselves, you're not operating under his lordship. Ah, I got to move. He says... The things in heaven and on earth, he going to get to that. Because he going to talk about chapter 6, even though we go through spiritual warfare and we're going through a lot of hell and violence, guess what? God rules over the ones who we're fighting against. Anyway, verse 11. We're going to get there. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of the one who works all things. This is beautiful. According to the counsel of his own will. The, one, of the, one of the favorite verses of the old folks is 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 14. Who has known the mind of the Lord that he should instruct him? One translation says, who knows God enough that they could counsel him? <laughs> God ain't like laying on a couch somewhere, asking somebody questions to get counseled on what he need to do. No, God works all things after counseling himself. God is his own therapist, even though he don't need a therapist because he don't need fixing. But he talks to himself, and he's not crazy because it's three persons but one God. So when they talk to each other, when they talk to each other, they're not crazy. Even though he's talking to himself, he's not crazy. And so he counsels himself, tells himself to do, and he does He's, he, he's, to his own self, he's being true because he do according to his nature. So when he does everything after the counsel of his own will, everything in your life was a counseling session that God had with himself to do in your life. So stop complaining about what phase of life you're in. Stop getting frustrated about where God is taking you. God ain't done it yet because he did it after the counseling. So it's his timing. Listen, some of y'all are frustrated because God ain't done it yet and he's counseling himself not to do it. Why? Because he wants to counsel you. He's using... His counsel of himself to give you counseling. Your life is a big counseling session. One big old counseling session and life coaching session to look like Jesus Christ. But you just do it while you walk. And so I'm just telling you, God does everything that he wants to do. No matter how much anxiety you, you have, no matter how frustrated you get, no matter how angry, you can walk away from God acting like that's going to tweak him to work. it. I'm going to walk away from Watch, watch. I'm going to wild out. He's like, okay. I'm going to go after you, but I am going to beat the snot out of you while you out there too. And God ain't going to change it. He's going to change you. That's the Christian life. Christian life isn't we do types of things to present to God so that he can do what we want. You can name it. You can claim it. You can call it. You can haul it. You can blab it. And you can grab it. But if he ain't counseled himself about it, he's not going to do it. And it could be something that's actually in his will, but because you're not relating rightly to him who counsels, then he's not going to do it because it's according to your purpose, not his. And so he'll say, just let's, let's give them three years. But you don't know it's three years. You just thought his, his delay is denial. And so you don't see three years later of the one who sees, I know I'm supposed to be done. Past, present, future, he sees all of it. After the kids are counseling, and they up there on the throne laughing. Watching us while out. I'm preaching to myself. Watching us not walking in faith. Trying to do it on our own. Getting real frustrated. And God said, if they would just wait three years. If they would just wait six months and see what I see. But you know what? Since they can't listen, it's going to be five years. Then all of a sudden, six months in, you start submitting. He moves it down to one year. He works everything after the counsel, listen, of his own will. He's not trying to work on stuff. He's trying to work on you. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> so stop trying to counsel God. Pray to him. Talk to him. Give him a list. It's okay. Proverbs 16, 1 through 3 and verse 9 says it's okay to make plans. However, if he doesn't submit to him, let him edit him. He may scratch the plans. And most of what you plan God won't do him through the plans, but he still wants you to plan. Be- but he doesn't want you to think just because you plan, it happened because of the plan. So he'll make you plan to work on you to get your butt disciplined. Listen, but then what he'll do is he'll not use the plans because he wants you to know that your discipline didn't get you into your plans. I'm, I'm, I'm done. I'm done. I'm done. I'm, I'm done. I, I, I Shut the Bible. Just shut it. It's, it I'm, I'm. Father. Father.